Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 198th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Bill Bengen. Bill is the former owner of Bengen Financial Services, an independent REA based in Southern California that oversaw nearly 50 million of assets under management for 80 affluent retirees. What's unique about Bill, though, is that he's also known as the father of the 4% rule and the progenitor of the research that we now know as safe withdrawal rates, research that he not only published in a series of studies in the Journal of Financial Planning in a subsequent book, but also research that he put into practice with his clients as a financial planning practitioner. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Bill first developed his safe withdrawal rate research, the retirement problem in the early 1990s that he was trying to solve for, the irony that Bill first did his safe withdrawal rate studies to delve deeper than rules of thumb that were popular at the time and then ended out having his 4% rule become a rule of thumb instead. How Bill integrated his 4% rule alongside his financial planning business and why Bill didn't actually use the 4% safe withdrawal rate with his clients. He used 4.5% instead. We also talk about Bill's own path as a financial planner, how he career changed into financial planning after first studying aerospace engineering and then spending his first career running the family soda bottling business, how a fateful media mention of NAPFA led Bill to launching his business from the start as an independent REA in the early 1990s when it was not yet popular to do so, and how Bill was able to get traction in his early marketing as one of the only fee-only financial planners in his area and why Bill decided from the start to maintain his firm as a lifestyle practice with no more than about 80 clients at any particular time. And be certain to listen to the end, where Bill shares what led him to ultimately decide to retire and sell his firm, why he believes the safe withdrawal rate today could be as high as 5% given the low inflation environment, the reason Bill currently maintains a very conservative portfolio for his own assets as a retiree, and why Bill thinks that advisors should be more tactical with the asset allocation for their own retired clients. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Bill Bengen. Welcome, Bill Bengen, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Glad to be here, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the the podcast today and having you on as a guest. The research that you did around retirement withdrawals, but I think now we sort of collectively call the 4% rule, is has been around for, I guess, more than 25 years since you originally published the article on it. You, you I know, lived your own career as a, as a financial advisor doing this live with clients, have since retired and, and, and sold your practice. And so... You know, I'm just I'm I'm fascinated both to hear a little bit of kind of the origin of that research, where it came from, what it looked like in practice as someone that was doing this live with clients and having these conversations, and and even what it looks like now from the from the other side of now that you are a retiree and reflect back on this research, like does it feel the same now that you're living the retiree path versus the advising retirees path? So really excited to have you on the podcast and and. Uh, talk about this this retirement research journey that you've been on. Yeah, that should be fun. So I, I guess to 
to, to kick us off on this, tell us a little bit about the advisory firm that you had when you were in practice. I know you, you've since sold it. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but just to give people context of Bill Bangan, the financial advisor, when that was your main thing that you were doing for so many years, what did your advisory firm practice look like? Uh, I was the sole practitioner. My wife was the only other individual in the firm. She handled, you know, all the administrative matters and thank goodness I had her, could have done it without her. But uh, I attempted to uh, to go out on my own, hang up my shingle individually and actually operated my practice out of a office attached to my home with a private entrance, which is something I considered ideal. You know, for my, I didn't want to commute. I commuted in New York for many years to uh, the job I had there. I wanted to be out of the house and uh, comfortable and, and be able to, with young children, you know, have reasonable hours. So uh, I did that. Whether I would do that today, I, I doubt it. I don't think I'd want to become a solo practitioner and a financial planning today. I think it's just too complex. I think I'd probably want to be part of a larger firm, but that's how I did it, you know, back then. Interesting. And was that because you feel like the the business was less complex then to have to to have to deal with or or there just weren't a lot of choices because the you know today we have a lot of large firms you can affiliate with an advisor if you want to. Back then it was kind of your you're in a large broker dealer environment or you're you're setting up your own shop somewhere as a sole proprietor. Like there, there were no in-betweens. Yeah, I think the, the matter of choice was very important. There were very few options, if any, available back in the early 90s, you know, of uh, fee-only financial firms that I would be interested to, you know, be involved with. So I started my own with the thoughts, maybe later on, I'll eventually join another firm, but that turned out not to be necessary. But the complexity of what we do and what, what I don't do, but you folks do nowadays and the increased regulation burden is, uh, I, I just, my hat's off to you for being able to handle it. So for you, the, the challenge about being a sole proprietor wasn't necessarily the having and servicing clients parts. It was the, it was the compliance and regulatory burden. That was the, the concern and the challenge point. Yeah, that's exactly. And also, you know, as a, complexity of the business grew, you know, and you needed expertise in more and more areas. It became more and more difficult, you know, for one individual to wear all those hats. Right. Right. If you're, if your client base keeps getting more broad and, and complex, there's more areas of expertise you need if you don't pick something to specialize in and focus on that and just get repeatable expertise in one area. That's right. So, so I, I guess really two questions. One, why did you land in this I think, as you said, RA fee-only world in the first place, because particularly in the, in the early 1990s when you were starting your firm, like, that was not common. There were not a lot of fee-only RAs out there. There were, uh, you know, Schwab had only just created a service where you could even manage assets for clients on an RA platform. Like that was just a new thing at the time. Mm-hmm. So what? What led you there when you know almost everything in the advisor world was was broker dealer based at that point? Well, I wanted to be fee only because when I managed our soft drink bottling firm back in New York, I also managed the investment portfolio for the firm and I dealt with brokerage firms. And quite frankly, my experience for those firms was not a very good one. I found those people, not the type of people that I wanted to be as a client come to later years Mm. at at financial planning advice because I knew they were selling. And uh, sometimes the methods they used were very 
underhanded and, and unsavory. So I would definitely want to be outside the brokerage world and inside the fee-only world. And I attended a NAFA meeting in 1989 and people were so nice and I felt so comfortable. It made up my mind, you know, instantly. Interesting. So NAFA was the, you know, the fee-only network in a world where particularly then almost all the industry was was brokerage, you know, uh, then, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what the size of NAPFA was then. I would imagine m- maybe a few hundred people in, yeah, in total. I, I know they only got started in 1983. So you were, you were all about five or six years in when you, when you got out to the organization. That's right. And NAPFA was really the Wild West in those days. I mean, you know, it attracted a lot of independent thinking people who had very strong ideas about how they wanted to do things in their practice, which included me. Uh, and they didn't tolerate, <laughs> necessarily tolerate other viewpoints well. So it was an interesting experience. Of course, that's changed. How did you find NAPA? Like, I'm just curious, you're, you're, you know, you're a, quote, consumer at the time running the family bottling company business, thinking, like, maybe I want to do this financial services thing. Like, how do you land on NAPA, this, at the time, very small organization at the fringe of doing fee-only financial planning when everybody else is in the brokerage world? Like, how, how did you get there? You know, I read about it in an article in Money Magazine, believe it or not, about this organization. Very cool. So, yeah, so you read about NAPFA and Money Magazine said, hey, this sounds neat. I'm going to go check this out. And here's all these people that are saying, like, you can totally run a financial planning business all by yourself charge fees. It's going to work. Come on in, Bill. Try it out. They were true believers then, you know, and it was almost like Unicate, a religious fervor. And uh, I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And I'm glad I did because everything they told me was possible, particularly in those days, you know, 30 years ago. So, so as you were transitioning in, what, what were you transitioning from? Like, what were you doing previously? You mentioned briefly you were in, in a bottling business. Yeah, well, originally I was trained as an aerospace engineer at MIT. I really wanted to be involved in planetary exploration. That's what excited me. That's what got me going. But uh, as I progressed in my studies and the moon program started to wind down, there was no plans for anything beyond that. And I realized that basically the best I could hope for would be an engineer drafting drawings somewhere in a big corner with hundreds of other engineers. And that didn't appeal to me. So I, I really lost interest in my major. I'm lucky I got out of MIT in one piece, quite frankly, and I joined the family soft drink business. They had a franchise for 7-Up and other brands, which they'd held since the 1920s, 1930s. Actually, the business began in the late 19th century. And I swore I would never do that. I did not want to join the family business. It was not something I want to do. This is about as far away from space exploration, you know, filling soft drink bottles. Yeah. As you can imagine but I did, and I learned a lot. It was a wonderful experience because I learned about a business. I learned about profit and loss statements. I understand why businessmen make the decisions they do, you know, the, the conflicts they face and the difficulties they face. So it was invaluable training for me, turned out. Very cool. Very cool. And so what ultimately led to this shift where suddenly you go from the family business that was around since the late 19th century to... You're at this NAPFA meeting getting bought into the opportunities of being a personal financial planner. Yeah, I, I remember having a bad dream one night. And the next morning, I walked, walked into my dad's office. He was the chairman of the company. 
And I said, Dad, we've had this business in our family for exactly 100 years, 1887. But I think it's time to sell, time to fold them, you know. And uh, I sat down and went over with them how far the company had fallen behind the competition. That was almost impossible to catch up. And sometimes you just have to cash chips in. And we did. And I'm very glad we did because a few years later, the 7-Up brand, which was our mainstay, our largest and most profitable product, collapsed in share. So <laughs> Interesting. Because uh, another competing bottler came in and won a contract away from the, the company, essentially? No, it's just that we were number three in the New York metropolitan area. We served about 7 million people, which sounds like a lot, but Coke and Pepsi were much bigger than we are. They enjoyed enormous you know, efficiencies of production, uh, so right. they produced the product a lot less. And we were just gradually falling further and further behind. And I saw no, op- no chances to catch up. So, you know, so much for market timing. And you know, people don't say market timing, but <laughs> it worked in my case. So I guess it feels a little bit different when you're a private business with a little bit more of inside perspective on what's going on in the dynamics of the business. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys had essentially made the decision in late 1980s, we're going to sell the family business. We've got a great 100-year run, but it's not competitive. We're falling behind. It's, it's time to sell and get out while, while the times are pretty good. So you made this decision and now all of a sudden it's like, so sold the family business, still have a working career left. That's right. Not sending people to other planets right now. So got to find something to do. Find something on this planet I have to do. Yeah. And, you know, I I had some money as a result of the fail. I knew I was going to have to have financial planning needs. And uh, I thought to myself, why don't I just simply educate myself? on this so I can handle this myself. And perhaps that'll be a business opportunity for me as well that I can handle, you know, out of a home office. And that's the way it worked. Oh. Interesting. So was it, was it really starting for you directly is, I just want to learn about financial planning because I want to do it for myself. And the decision to become an advisor came later or did this sort of crop up together? Like, I want to learn to be an advisor and I'll also learn some stuff for me along the way. Probably over a period of a couple of months, the, the idea evolved from a self-help idea to a, uh, a career. Okay. And, and how were you going about that? Was this like, were you going to find things like CFP certification at the time? Were you just reading consumer information in generally and trying to educate yourself in the finance area? Was there other programs or education you were looking for? Yeah, well, once I thought I was going to be serious about being a professional, I signed up for the CFP. You know, okay. of course, I took courses. Uh, back then, there were the six individual segments with individual tests. Uh, so I spent several years getting that and got my CFP certification. And eventually went for a master's degree, you know, with the College for Financial Planning. Right, because I, I, I guess I'm trying to think back to the history. The, the comprehensive exam for CFP certification came about in the early 90s, I think ni- 91 or 93. So when you were in, it was the six individual courses, but just you got through the six courses, you completed the exam for each, and then you were done when you got through all of them. I think I was one of the last in the group. And then I, I, I decided to go for the CFA as well. And I passed the first test, but at that point, my practice was growing so rapidly, I really didn't have time to study. So I decided to pass on that, you know, further study in that field. So, so as you got launched, like, what did you launch with? Like, what did you start with? Who did you go after? Like, how did, how did you start going out there as a financial advisor and getting clients starting 
from scratch with no history in the business. Yeah, that was that was scary. <laughs> well, I had a little help from family, okay, who, who gave me some of their accounts. And then I lived in a neighborhood where I developed a lot of friends. And they were all, you know, in kind of my age group. And they're just starting to think seriously about retirement. And they were concerned, you know, in the early 90s. So they were happy to have somebody in the neighborhood, you know, who wasn't selling them an insurance policy, who was going to give them financial advice. So the practice just kind of grew. I got a lot of local folks and they referred me and I've never advertised. I never signed up for any of those programs for referrals. Uh, I was able to very fortunate to build my, my business through existing clients and referrals. Interesting. Because I guess, well, as noted at the time, you know, being a particularly and being a fee-only financial planner in a world where, I mean, I think literally like 98 to 99% of financial advisors were at brokerage firms or insurance agencies, being there as a financial planner without anything to sell them and just giving advice effectively was this very narrow niche at the time that they didn't see from anyone else. So to be able to say like, I'm, I'm the one in the neighborhood that does this. That's right. Was yeah. very was very differentiated. In the county or wherever, you know, it was, you're absolutely right. Very sparse financial free only viruses at that time. So people did seek out, you know, they've been reading, they've been publicized and they wanted it. So it worked out great. You know, I was kind of like in the flow of things. It's nice to be, you know, riding with the tide, whatever you're doing in life, you know. And, and so was this still in the, in the New York area where you had been with the family business previously? Is that where you built your advisory firm? No, no. Actually, we moved to California shortly after we sold the business to New York. I had a friend who lived in San Diego and he said, why don't you come out in this area? You know, we took our kids out there. They were like seven or eight at the time and had Thanksgiving dinner. It was like 80 degrees for four days and said, what are we doing in New York for business <laughs> What are we doing in New York? So we, we made a very quick, and we've done, Cookie and I, my wife, we, we make these, these big decisions usually very quickly because we both know what we want. We just pulled up stakes and took our kids and uh, bought a house and took it from there, you know, and there's a lot of risk in an approach like that. I knew I was going to have to find employment, but, you know, it worked out. So, so as you got started building with, sort of local network and local neighborhood, like this wasn't the neighborhood you'd been in for years and years that, that no. you developed relationship. And this was like, I relocated to the area and then had to go out there and show people what I was doing and how it was different from everybody else, which at the time was very different than almost everybody else. And, and that was part of, I guess, the, the differentiation that got it going pretty quickly for you. Yeah, I think, you know, the MIT credentials were helpful. Later on, you know, uh, authoring papers on the 4% rule became important for drawing customers in too. You got a little publicity from that. But yeah, never easy, but it happened, you know. So, so talk to us now about the, the evolution of, of the 4% rule research that you did. So you, you, you went to the infamous NAPFA meeting in 1989. You got started shortly thereafter. And it wasn't wasn't that long thereafter, I know, that the first paper came out, as memory serves, the, your first paper on what we now call 4% rule was 1993 or 94 in the, in the Journal of Financial Planning. Right. So, so talk to us about, I guess, wh where that research came from. What was going on at the time that made you say, I want to hey, do some research and write a paper about this and, and take a swing at what I think is going on with this retirement thing? 
Yeah, I can tell you the last thing I wanted to do with a, a fast-growing practice was to get involved in a research project that would take several thousand hours of my time, evenings and weekends. But uh, clients were coming to me and they were asking, you know, I, I want to save for retirement. You know, how should I save? How much should I save? And then when I get in retirement, you know, how am I going to spend this money? You know, how do I set my investments up? And I just completed the CFP course, you know, within the last year, 18 months, this is about 93. And I couldn't recall anything in any of those textbooks that addressed these issues. And I went back and I looked at the textbooks and I didn't see anything. And I tried to, it wasn't easy to, as easy back then to research things on the internet as today. Right. But I looked books, I spoke to people, I got a lot of different answers. Most of them seemed to be rules of thumb based on vague experience. No one had any definitive you know, analysis that I could find. So I said, guess I'm going to have to do it. You know. So I just got out my computer, my spreadsheet, got a copy of the Ibbotson database and, and started cranking numbers. That's what it came down to. Very cool. And, and so did you have a did you have a working hypothesis? Did you have a thing you were going for? Like, was there something you were aiming for? Or just, let's just kind of wade into some data and see what we find. That's exactly the approach that took. I wanted to, there are certain issues I want to explore, like what was the safe withdrawal rate? You know, that, that was one of the big questions I had. I found it was very important in this research, you don't have any preconceived notions because I was, over the years, I've been constantly surprised by the results I had. And if I had gone into it, it was some, fixed idea, I might have missed a very critical aspect of it. So I guess like in all scientific research, you try to keep your mind in blank and just follow where the data takes you. And, and so can you set the, I guess, set the context for us at the time? Like what, what were the rules of thumb and, and things going around at the time that you were looking at and saying like, yeah, this isn't cutting it. We got to go. We got to go a little deeper on this. Well, some people said, you know, the average portfolio returns, what, seven and a half percent, you know, a 60, 40 over time. So you should be able to take out six, seven percent. No problem. Other people said, oh, my goodness, you're in retirement now. You have to be in bonds 100 percent. You can't afford the risk of the stock market. What are you thinking? Right. And of course, when I got into the data, neither one of those positions turned out to be viable. They were both wrong. So you dug into this. How, how did you ultimately come to this number of 4%, like what, what made 4% the magic number that says like, this is the one that Bill has dubbed safe for yeah. all of us? Well, I just experimented with portfolios of different allocations and just took the withdrawal rate down until I got one that lasted, a portfolio that lasted 30 years. And at that time, I was only working with two asset classes, basically large company stocks and uh, treasury notes. And I got a number of 4.15%. I created this chart and I looked at it and I said, this is amazing because the withdrawal rate is the same over a very wide range of stock allocation. I think between 45 and 75%, it was about the same. So at that point, it didn't appear to make too much difference what you choose. But I knew that a very heavy stock allocation was bad and a very low stock allocation was bad. So I came out with a number and unfortunately that number has haunted me. <laughs> <laughs> for years since then, because, you know, you're a sophisticated person. You know that one number cannot represent <laughs> the experience yeah. of so many different retirees. There's just too many dimensions to the problem to have a one number solution. Well, it is, you know, the irony is not lost on me that, you know, you started out this 
this story by pointing out like, why, like, Bill, why did you do the research? Well, I wanted to bust up these ridiculous rules of thumb with something that's more rigorous. And then you ended out with the thing that became so popular, people started calling it a rule of thumb and, 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 right. and saying that's ridiculous because it's too generalized. So funny how these things sometimes come full circle on us. Yeah. And I, I don't think I ever used the term 4% rule. I don't believe so. That was kind of a creation of the media. When I got into interviews with the media, you know, they wanted something simple, I understand, to present to their readers. Right. And they focused on that and said, this is the answer, you know, like a tic-tac-toe game, put the X here. But, you know, I thought about it for a while. And I said, what the heck? <laughs> you know, at least there's information getting out there, which is more accurate than the information that was out there before. And I can always clarify things if they have questions. Right. Yeah. I, uh, well, I mean, it reminds me, even you know, Markowitz's modern portfolio theory, like he didn't call it modern portfolio theory. I think he called it the EV rule for expected return volatility rule because he made this two-dimensional chart of expected returns and volatility. It was only later that we decided to call it modern portfolio theory. And, you know, I, I mean, I think the original title of your paper was just, you know, using historical data to determine withdrawal rates. We, we called it the 4% rule later. So I think it's interesting as you framed that you said, you know, like I, I put this historical data in there from Ibbotson and I just kept dialing the withdrawal rate down until I got to something that worked for all 30 years and all the different 30-year scenarios. Because I, I, I think there's still sometimes this Im impression or view out there of, well, you know, the, the 4% rule worked in all the old data because we used to get better return environments, but now we're in this low interest rate, lower return environment. So I don't know if this stuff's going to work anymore because we're not getting average historical rates of return from today, or at least some people don't think we're going to get average historical rates of return going forward from today. But your actual original study had nothing to do with average historical rates of return. The whole point was, let's look at actual sequences historically and find what would have worked in, basically what would have worked in the worst one. Because if it, if it survives the worst one, then it survives all of them. And that's where 4.15% came from. Like it's, it's the thing that worked in the worst scenario, not the thing that worked in the average scenario. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And, and that caused me some problems with some advisors because I feel, you know, it wasn't adequate. It was too low. And I, I try to explain to them, you know, this, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. You know, there should be other numbers for other people with other, other situations, but this is what we, we have being publicized now. You know, again, it, it strikes me some of the, the irony of how these things evolve, right? You, you put out a 4% rule in a world where, you know, balanced portfolios were doing 7.5% plus. People were saying take 6 and 7% and, and you'll be fine in the early 1990s. I mean, heck, even 6 or 7 probably sounded conservative because the S&P was doing double-digit returns for more than a decade that, at that point with just a small, fast recovery blip in 1987. So... You know, and it, like in the middle of that environment, you said, let's look at all the historical data. We get this number of 4.15%. We can rerun the research today. You know, historical data is still the same historical data. We still come up with the same 4.15% today. But, but now we criticize the 4% rule, not saying that it's too low. Now we say it's too high, yeah. even though it's the same data. Like the only thing that changed is our current recent environment. When the markets were good in the 90s, we said 4% sounds too low now returns have been weaker and we say 4% sounds too high. And it's actually the same worst case historical scenarios that's guiding it in all of these situations. Yeah, I think people have to realize that when they use the 4.5% rule, as you mentioned, it's a worst case scenario. 
It was an inflationary environment. And, you know, based on what I know now, in a very low inflation environment like we have now, if we had modest stocks, I wouldn't be recommending four and a half. I'd probably be recommending five and a quarter, five and a half, something like that, which is even going to enrage people even more because it's higher than the four and a half percent. But that's what history has demonstrated. Whether our current environment is going to cause such low returns that, you know, that'll undermine that whole structure, I don't know. But people have to keep in mind inflation is equally important as returns in this analysis and that when you have a low inflation environment, your withdrawals are also going up much more slowly. So there's an offset to the lower returns that you can't ignore. Right. That's, that's, I guess, for better or worse, part of the consolation right now. You know, a lot of people will point out like, well, Bill, you know, we, we only get like a half a percent on our, on our, on some of our bond returns right now. When you were doing that research, you could get six, seven, eight percent. It's like, yeah, but when you were doing the research, we were coming off double digit inflation environments, not that many years before. And now we're sitting at inflation that I think the Fed is just praying it doesn't go negative at this point. So like we're, 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 we're hovering at the zero bound. So when you start looking at things like real rates of return after inflation, they're, you know, they're not nearly, we may be in a somewhat lower return environment, but they're not nearly as lower return as sometimes we make it out to be because we look at the nominal and forget the real. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think there's some overreaction. I haven't been able to develop scenarios myself in a low inflation environment where the, it goes below four and a half percent. So I'm not sure where those concerns are coming from. I haven't seen, you know, the uh, the background work behind those claims, those concerns. So, so I, I'm struck as well. Now, you you have mentioned a few times here. You you have called it the four and a half percent rule. So. When did when did you move from four to four point one five to four and a half percent? Sure. You remember originally I was just working with two asset classes. And then in two thousand five, when I was working on my book, I uh, introduced small cap stocks, US small cap stocks, which really juiced everything. The returns, there they didn't have a perfect correlation with large cap. So that juiced it from four point one five percent to almost four and a half percent. You know, I use them as a proxy for a wide variety of asset classes, international stocks, REITs, and so on, because uh, they're so powerful in terms of generating higher returns. And that's that's when I came up with that number. Interesting. So, so I guess the kind of the big asterisk, the whole thing about 4% rule in that original research is just, you know, today... We do have more investment opportunities. We own more than a literally like a two asset class portfolio, large cap U.S. stocks, intermediate U.S. government bonds, and and nothing else. And and I guess no great surprise what we know from modern portfolio theory. In theory, if we have more diversified portfolios, we can get better risk adjusted returns. And I guess when you when you put the safe withdrawal rate lens on it, you get a you get a similar effect: more diversification, less volatility for a unit of risk. And then you end out with with more retirement income sustainability and your 4% rule becomes a 4.5% rule. Yeah. And I don't know how much further you can take that beyond, you know, as you introduce more asset classes, does it become a, a diminishing returns? That's one of the issues right. I want to study over the next year. When I throw in all these other asset classes, does it improve it? I know that, you know, I did a research paper a couple of years ago where I just used small cap stocks very, very heavily. It turns out, you know, the, the withdrawal rates were off the charts. In, in some years, they were as much as 25%. Imagine starting retirement with a 25% withdrawal rate, taking a quarter of your portfolio and lasting 30 years. 
But there have been a number of situations where that prevailed and many other situations where double digit returns were the norm with small cap stocks. So right. there's still a lot of things to look at, you know. Interesting. But but the overall gist to me that I think is just as notable for where we stand today, like the you know, 4% rule came not from average returns. It came from the worst thing we could find in history, which is pretty much still the worst thing we could find in his history because history hasn't hasn't really changed. The the four percent rule for you actually moved to a four and a half percent rule, just given the amount of modern diversification we can own today compared to the the original two asset class portfolio that you were looking at originally, and and this kind of balanced portfolio in the middle really was working best. If you go too heavy in equities, I guess just yeah. you get crushed in a bear market. If you go too conservative, scenarios like the nineteen seventies inflation kill you, and and you know, the thing in between kind of gives you the, the stocks for the inflation hedge and the bonds for the stock hedge and and off you go. Yeah. One thing I noticed when I introduced the small cap stocks, because they're a much more volatile asset class and large caps, where before I had a very wide, you know, plateau between 45 and 75 percent stocks, it narrowed it down to 50 to 60 as being the okay. op- optimum equity allocation. Interesting. So as you got more diversification in there, you, it kind of narrowed in like, here's really the optimal balancing point of enough, enough, but not too much on the risk spectrum. Exactly. So I am curious then, what, what did this look like in practice with clients? Like, was this something you used in practice with clients? Was this like cool research, but we still have to do it other ways when we get down to individual client cir- circumstances? Like what did what did 4% rule or 4.5% rule look like for you as a practitioner with clients? Well, when I started my practice, I didn't actually have too many clients in retirement, okay? They tended to be closer to my age and only in the later years of my practice. But clients liked the idea. They understood the basis. They read the material. They felt it was sound. And uh, as financial planning sale for it got more sophisticated, you know, every year when we did our annual review, I would give them an update showing where it left them. And uh, it worked very well. I didn't have any clients whose portfolios blew up, you know, as a result of that. They all looked like they were going to be trending well. Of course, we're running through massive bull markets at the time, which is an ideal environment for any withdrawal plan. But uh, it was very successful, you know, and I think it enhanced my my clients' uh, confidence in my skills. So... So as you were going through that, like, were you, and I recognize financial planning software looked different at the time than it, than it does today. Was this like, you would have a conversation with clients about 4% rule and what's sustainable and look and say like, your spending seems to be in line with that. So you're good. Were you still also pulling out financial planning software and running projections there as well as like a I don't know, like a belt and suspenders reaffirming, like here's a 4% number, but, but we're also going to run it in the planning software just to see, or didn't bother because the planning software always said it was good if they were doing a 4% rule in the first place. Like what was the balance between having a conversation about something like the 4% rule and then this software stuff that we've got to do financial planning projections? Yeah, some of the earlier financial planning software was based on spreadsheets, as you know. It was, right. it was very cumbersome to use. So- I just basically reviewed my clients every year, indicated, you know, I compared a balance that they had in their accounts with the balance we thought they should have based on, you know, the four and a half percent rule. But as it became more sophisticated, the planning, I actually was able to run a detailed 30-year plan or a 20-year plan for them 
every year when we do a review. So they that automatically just confirmed to them that things were on track. It made my job a whole lot easier. Although I still think there are things financial planning software could introduce to take full advantage, you know, of the results of the research. So what what would you have liked to see or want to see now in planning software that would that you think would fit this even better? Well, sooner or later, you know, market circumstances are going to change and people's withdrawal plans may start to fail. Perhaps because they were too ambitious. Maybe they decided to take out 6% when they're advised 5 and market circumstances, you know, didn't favor their decision. So I think financial planning software needs to have the ability to, let's say, if we're comparing to a specific historic scenario, let's say the advisor, the investor retired in October 1968, we can track my client's withdrawal rate each year against the withdrawal rate for that hypothetical client, see how they're doing. Now, if they fall under the curve, then they know they're in trouble. They're going to have to make some adjustments to their plan. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do now. There's no easy software solution for that that I'm aware of. Yeah, I, I know there are some one-off tools that have started trying to do that. Uh, Big Charts has an illustrator that does that. Timeline has an illustrator tool that that does that. But like they, they live as standalone tools, the like the financial planning software packages, like the you know, the full package ones that most of us use as our anchors, don't seem to build any of that in. Yeah. Well, well, you know, as you know, for most clients, their wealth grows during retirement, even though they were drawing. So that Generally, most clients have a very favorable environment, and they, they, it's a long time since they've had to worry about the other problem, you know. Right. But that is just a matter of time. All things come around in financial planning, and this will too. So, so how did you look at or think about things like Monte Carlo software as it came forth? Because I know when you, when you started this research, that wasn't out there. We lived, we lived purely in spreadsheet software. I think fin- Monte Carlo started hitting financial advisor world in the late 1990s when Lynn Hopewell did an an article in the journal Financial Planning and kind of put it on the roadmap and we started seeing it get added to planning software a couple of years later. So as Monte Carlo came in, how did you look at 4% rule or 4% rule conversations? I didn't use a lot in my utilized Monte Carlo analysis in my research. I've, I've pretty much stuck, you know, to the spreadsheet approach, although I recognized the Monte Carlo approach has enormous value because, you, you know, you can examine a lot of thousands of scenarios very quickly. Right. It all depends upon the assumptions that you use as to the vet, which relates to the value of the outcome. I'm assuming that the people who are issuing these warnings, grim warnings, you know, about, you know, 3% rates and three and a half are using Monte Carlo software to generate their predictions. So, I haven't seen, you know, how that happens. So it's hard for me to comment on it since I haven't worked with it that much. You know, we actually did a, an article on this on, on Nerds I View a couple of years ago, of just this, this comparison of, of kind of either 4% rule or just generally like using historical market scenarios and, and comparing it to Monte Carlo projections. Yeah, I think we tend to criticize historical analysis. Of, hey, you know, why only look at 100 historical market scenarios when you could look at you know 10,000 or a bajillion from a, from a Monte Carlo engine and you know hey what happens when we look at the full range of stuff and you know what we had found in in the in the research when we actually modeled that is Monte Carlo actually illustrates 
a rather material number of scenarios that are, are literally worse than anything we've ever, ever seen in history. And on the one hand, to me, that sort of makes sense. Like, we only have 100 plus years of historical draws. If you do 10,000 draws from a Monte Carlo engine, you should get a few things that you've, you've never seen in history. But some of them get like really extreme. I mean, as much as we, I think, sometimes talk about the worries of what happens if the future is worse than the past, you know, Monte Carlo, if you don't otherwise adjust it for most planning software, like you could have two years in a row where the market crashes 25%. Monte Carlo still assumes it's equally likely to crash again in the third year. And, you know, in the real world, as we see in the historical data, like by the time you go down 50%, things get cheaper and buyers tend to start showing up and yields get better and, and the situation changes. And, and, you know, that's baked into the historical numbers. That's not there in the Monte Carlo analysis, or at least it's not there unless you create some separate assumptions to put it there, which most people don't. Yeah. And maybe that, that phenomenon is what accounts for, you know, the very dire forecast some people give. I think it's important to realize that both methods, my historic method and the Monte Carlo method, are valuable and have their place, you know, in, in addressing the problem. But neither one of them are predictive. They have no predictive value whatsoever because the future can be completely different than what we've experienced. And so just as an advisor going through those conversations with, with clients, when you're working with the client base, like, how do you have that conversation, right? I mean, it's, it, to some extent, it's the one we always live with, right? The, the past is not predictive of future results. Now, let me show you everything we've learned in history about how markets work and invest your portfolio and give you recommendations accordingly. Like, I, I mean, we, we have to, because otherwise you're just operating completely blind. So we have to use something, but uh, like, how did you balance that? Hey, I've done all this analysis based on historical scenarios, which we say are not predictive of the future, but I still have to give you recommendations that I'm going to give you based on the historical analysis. Yeah, you have to be very upfront with clients uh, and explain to them that this is not a science we're doing, okay? It's not like Isaac Newton sitting down developing three laws of motion in physics, you know, which are probably going to stand for, for billions of years into the future. What we're doing is almost a social science. We're, we're examining the past and we have data, but we don't have an underlying theory, you know, that relates data and, and facts so that we, we can't use it to predict anything. We can only use it as a guide. So as you went through this with clients, was 4% rule largely your number or did you start using 4, 4.5% after you did your, your book and kind of found, hey, once we get more diversification here, this number goes up? Did you have a, a different number you used for some clients? I, I used the, about the 4.2% number to start, but you know, every client's situation is different. I had clients that were five and a half percent because they're expecting a large inheritance, let's say five years down the road that they're fairly certain of. And I had clients who were down at 3% because they had a pension plan that had no inflation adjustment. So over time, right. they were going to have to increasing demands put on their portfolio to support their income stream. So yeah, we start with, but there's a wide spectrum around it. And so how did you get to those adjustments of Hey, because your pension stream isn't inflation adjusting, you probably should be at three instead of four. Like, was that just years of experience and running these numbers a bajillion times and you knew where people were likely to end out? Was that a, no, I'm still going to pull out my planning software and try to do these, I guess, the time spreadsheet projections and try to figure out what a reasonable number is for you? How would you get to the individual client adjustments? 
Yeah, I am not smart enough to do that off the top of my head, Michael. The financial planning software is an essential part of that. You know, I just had to run the numbers and, and show them, you know, how it worked, you know. So so to you, it sounds like 4% rule wasn't necessarily an, an alternative to or an in lieu of planning software. It was, uh, well, if you put this number in, you're going to get a plan that works. And if it's a client with a, quote, regular situation, that's probably the number you're going to get out with anyways. But if you get clients that have anything else going on, as many of them do, we're yeah. still ultimately back to planning software to make sure we actually get a number that works for them. Yeah. And so on an ongoing basis, how did you, you look at this? Sounds like, like just pull updated numbers, see how they're running relative to the original projection and just make sure like, is our current year withdrawal rate still reasonable? That's exactly right. Yeah, we would, you know, we'd have a keep a track record of all the, the target portfolio value targets that had established in early analyses. And we just brought them up, you know, at each year's meeting and see where are we. And generally, it would exceed them because, you know, bull markets, you know, yeah. well, 96% or more, all people end up with more than they started with on a nominal basis. Right. Yeah, I think that's something that that people miss a lot. Like if you look at those historical scenarios at a 4% rule, 96% of the time, your whole nest egg's still left over at the end. That's right. So, so did any of this change when 9-11 happened and just the, 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 the tech crash and the recession and the decline at the early 2000s? Because you know, I, I get it. it. It looked great in the 90s because we're just, we're in a bull market anyways. I mean, I, you probably could have taken 6 or 7%. You were still going to be okay for the first five or 10 years because the markets were so good, did, did the conversations, the dynamic change for you once the recession and, and 9-11 hit? Well, I explained to my clients that, you know, even though the markets come down considerably, we're in a terrible bear market, things don't look good, tech stocks have crashed. Uh, we're still nowhere near where we were, let's say, the 1970s, where inflation was raging and uh, there was an oil embargo and stocks went nowhere for 16 years. You know, it just doesn't compare. So all those were scary times. I said, it's not time to send an alarm. It doesn't require, you know, any exceptional methods or. Well, I think you make such, you make a good point that, you know, the, the markets basically had a, a decade and a half of being flat from the mid 1960s to the early 1980s. And so plus double digit inflation on top of it. Yeah. So, you know, e- even worse in real terms. And you know when you, when you look at it from that perspective, like as as rough as markets have been and as volatile as markets have been, like we are still doing a lot better than what it was in the 1970s. Yeah, the the Fed has been the friend of investors for a long time, quarter of a century now. Yeah. So as you built this in practice, how did the practice shape up over time? Did you end out in this realm of working more and more with retirees because you were the guy that put this? retirement research out there, you know, how, how far did the practice grow as you went down this road? You know, I, I decided I didn't want to take on a partner or grow into practice to the extent that I would depend upon, you know, outside help. So I, I, there were times when I actually closed my practice to new clients and would, sometimes that would last for six months, a year. And then, you know, the opportunities would open up and then I'd reopen. And that, that was a thing that went all through the late 90s uh, and the 2000s, you know, early two, and the teens. So just you you got it to the level of this is how many clients I'm comfortable with. Yeah. The math is adding up well. I can put food on my table and save for my retirement. 
I'm good. I don't, I don't need more clients than this. No, I'm, I was happy financially with the income I was deriving for the practice. And I didn't want the hassle of getting into a larger business because been there, done that. <laughs> Ran right. a business with 400 employees. Don't need that anymore. <laughs> and as you built in that direction, like how many clients did you find was your comfort point? When, when, was, it, when was it no more for you? I got up to about 80 clients. I found that was about all I could handle, you know, the resources I had. That was a comfortable number. So I try to keep it right around there. Okay. So you you got up to about 80 clients, kind of kept it there, I guess, as a few leave or move or unfortunately pass on, you free up a few spaces, you had a few clients back in and just for you and your wife helping you in the practice, that that was the comfortable level of, I can serve these clients, the income is good, we're going to hang out here. That's right. Still, even with that limited number of clients, I spent a lot of hours working nights, weekends, and I'm sure a lot of solo practitioners do that. Yeah. I was younger. I, I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed working hard, but if I had to do over again, maybe I'd hold to the 60 clients <laughs> now. Uh, it's, the, it's the amazing thing about the advisory business though, is just, uh, you know, clients tend to stick around as long as we're servicing them well. They pay a, a pretty good dollar amount per client at the end of the day. Like you, you don't need an immense number of client relationships to have the math add up pretty, pretty well. No, it's, it's really, to me, it's a beautiful profession. At least it was back when I was in it. You have a very close, you, you feel like you're really making a difference in people's lives on a day-to-day basis. You have a direct personal contact with them. They can get you anytime they want to. And you know, you have the technical skills and the support systems to do whatever they need to get done. So it's very, very, very satisfying. And so how long did you continue to run the, the practice? When, when did you ultimately decide you were ready to be done, done, done? 25 years, just about, you know, and that was 2013 when I retired. Okay. And so, so what drove the decision to retire in 2013? Well, it was a combination of things. You know, I had a grandson on the East Coast. I wanted to see, I wanted to be a good grandfather. And, you know, the demands of time were still very heavy from the business. And uh, I felt the winds of change approaching too. There were so many things going on, particularly in the regulatory area. Uh, Even though I had an outside consult, I think I was finding it more and more difficult to compete with some of the larger firms who offered a broader range of services. Quite frankly, I had concerns about the market, investing. I always told my clients that uh, I would invest my money exactly as I invested theirs. As we moved into the middle of the 20 teens, I didn't think that was possible anymore. I felt I needed to get much more conservative, but I didn't want to impose that on them because the market could continue to go up. And so it did. So I figured I had a good run, time to cash in, go on something else. And so was that just a function of what was going on at the time? We were a couple of years out of the financial crisis. The Fed was doing its, its thing and just feeling like, I don't, I don't know that I want to keep playing this game with the uncertainty we've got in the current environment. Yeah. I mean, I did a great job. I got my clients completely out of the market in late 2008. So they never suffered the losses that other folks did. On the other side, I did a lousy job getting them back into the market after the crisis ended. If I knew then what I know now, it would have been a completely different process. But, you know, the whole financial planning profession is built around buy and hold, you know, philosophy. And I understand that. But to me, it's never been justified. 
that that is the best approach for planners, advisors to be using with their clients. It's almost become a cult attitude in itself that if you introduce the idea of what's called market timing or risk management, other planners will just shout you down. They don't want to hear it. I think that's a mistake. I think our profession needs to be all open-minded and look at alternative means of managing money and not just assume that buy and hold is the correct way to do it. Buy and hold is what I used in my analysis, my 4% rule. I mean, simply because it's a lot easier to analyze things than the multiplicity ways you can manage money in other means. But just because I did that analysis, I told people, doesn't mean you have to manage your money that way. So talk to us about this shift then, you know, getting getting completely out of markets. Was that before the crash, in the middle of the crash? Like, when did you make the shift out? And and how did that play out in practice with clients? It was, I remember my wife's brother who lived in Alabama passed away in September 2008. And before I left the office, I had clients essentially down to zero stock allocation, maybe a couple of percent. And in Alabama, I sold what was left. So we rode through the entire October, November, which were terrible. I think the market lost about 30%. We, we went through the uh, December recovery and then January and February came along and the market got crushed again. So clients were very happy. You know, I got a lot of nice calls. Who wouldn't? You know, you saved me 30% of my portfolio, 20%. That's great. And I remember going to a uh, an FPA meeting late in November of 2008 and advisors, you know, they, they looked like they'd just been beat to death. You know, they were so, they didn't know what to tell their clients. They'd lost so much money for them. They were literally in tears and I wasn't in that situation, you know, which I thought was cool. Eventually, of course, you know, the money came back or a lot of it, thanks to QE, but uh, I didn't have the, the process in place at that time to get back into the market. There were clear indications now, if you look at that March, April, you should be heading back in there heavily, you know. So, so when ultimately were you getting clients back in? 2010, I was starting to move back in, but I never put them into a full allocation, which was a mistake. That was just a bad mistake on my part. I just didn't have the process in place to know what to do. I had a good idea how to get out of the market, but I didn't have the process, the other half of the process, which is essential getting back in. You know, clearly valuations were cheap then. Uh, if you're into technicals, you can look at the technicals and say, hey, things are definitely changing here. And it was a very scary backdrop then. You know, people were calling for the end of the world, but That's not what you need to listen to in investing. You need to focus on other things to be successful. Now, I'm 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 still trying to think of just the the timing. I mean, from a practical perspective, like if you were if you were out in September before the the worst the brunt hit, I'm thinking like even by 2010, we weren't actually back to where we started. Like you were you were still actually getting in cheaper than what you got out. Just also missed kind of the really sharp V off the bottom that you could have gotten in much, much lower. Pulled the trigger earlier in 2009. Well, once again, I didn't fully invest my clients, which I should have, you know, prepare them for the, the huge run that followed. So what was it that you were seeing in 2008 that made you say, I'm actually taking my clients' dollars out of this? Well, I, I listened and, you know, doing a lot of reading at that time saying, you know, the housing market's in huge trouble. The banking system is in huge trouble. There are huge components of the financial system. Stocks look very feeble. 
I said, let's just get out of here. And to me, preserving cash, I always listen to Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said, you know, first rule of investing is lose money. The second rule is don't forget the first rule, you know. Right. So preserving capital has always been important to me. So I, I just thought the risk was so great at that point. I said, let's just get out and sit and wait and see what happens and how they resolve this, you know. And it seemed like every weekend, you know, they were working to patch up another leak in the system. Yep. So, so as you look back on this now with kind of getting out before the sharp V down, but then having trouble getting back in as the market came back up, like in retrospect, do you wish you had just held all the way through, took, took the drawdown, but gotten to participate in the, in the recovery? Or do you just view it as have a stronger process to say, if you're going to get out, make sure you know what your trigger points are to get back in, but you would still go through that process again? Yeah, I, I would prefer to have a stronger process. I just don't think it's right to put clients put through that kind of a drawdown for which they had to be rescued by QE. They had no right. QE, the market never would have recovered, I don't think, that quickly. And they would have been waiting a long time to get back to where they were. So depending upon the largest of the government uh, to preserve your capital, that's, uh, that's a thin thread. I, I would prefer to have had a much better process, which I have now, but no, that's one of the ridge. So had you had other, like, were there other times in, I guess, the almost 15 plus years you were, you had done the research and were working with clients before that, where you had also reined client risk exposure back? Or was that basically the first time you'd ever felt the need to really pull that, pull that trigger? No, I did that in 2002. Okay. We, we saved, I, and there I got back into the market more efficiently than I did in 2009, 2010, uh, we missed a lot of that bear market in 2000 2002. It was an obvious bubble, you know, tech stocks. I had clients coming to me, asking me to invest in certain stocks and, uh, and telling me about offers they had from a guy down the street who was starting up a tech business, you know, and it was going to go to the moon. I said, that's not a good sign. You know, let's, yeah. Like less than our Alex. So we did, and we got it back. But it wasn't as scary a time as 2008, 2009, right. when we looked at the entire financial system was going to burst worldwide. And so how do you view the process differently now of what you will look at to either say it's, it's, it's time to rein clients back or even yourself? And what, what does the process look like to get back in if you have another one of those and you want to get back in? Yeah, it relies heavily on valuation, but I also subscribe to a service, a market, I wouldn't call it market timing, they call it risk management, which helps me because I tend to be naturally conservative. It prevents me from being too conservative. So you've said you look heavily at valuation. Is there a particular like valuation measure or trigger that you look at? Like how, when do you actually decide to act? What does that model look like now? I have a... A strict discipline based on valuation. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the charts that John Huspin has produced, which shows basically that if you got out of the market at certain valuation levels and went to treasuries, you would find that the market will return to those lower valuations. So I use that as a basis and I have a schedule of the allocation in stocks against, let's say, a particular Schiller Cape level. Right now, I'm a quite low level. I'm probably around under 15% equities, given this environment. Now, the subscription service I use is much higher, but I just don't feel comfortable. But I'm, you know, I'm doing something that I don't think is practical for a person who manages money professionally. I'm managing money for my family, myself, 
And if I want to stay out of the market for 10 or 12 years, <laughs> no, no one's going to complain to me about that. It's very difficult to do that with constant pressure of what their neighbors are doing. And to a certain extent, I think that the profession has trapped itself in creating client expectations that the market will always come back and it'll come back quickly. That's not true. We know there have been long periods of time, like after the, the 30, not 29 crash or in the 60s and 70s with stocks went nowhere, didn't get back to their earlier levels for a long, long time. And that could happen to us again. I, I, I just think the profession ought to pay attention to that and, and give it some study before they reject more active management out of hand. Because we're running, we've built such an expectation that markets come back and always come back quickly that if, if at any point we're wrong and it really actually stays down for quite a while, suddenly we're going to have a whole lot of problems. Well, I've got a lot of explaining to do. You have a lot of explaining to do to your clients. You know, you've built up this expectation and uh, yeah, they're going to rely on you to, uh, for that to happen. And we know it, it always hasn't happened. So right. what is the basis for us developing that expectation? Ella? That depends on the Fed? You know? And out of curiosity, what is the, what is the risk management service you, you use to supplement your, your work that you find is, is credible and worthy? Invest Tech which is Jim Stack, based in Montana. Okay. Which is a good, good distance away from any financial center, so it gives them a certain perspective, <laughs> like Warren Buffett's got in Omaha there. And, and so when you decided to, to sell and exit the practice, how did you go about selling the firm? I decided I would hire an expert, you know, a third party who dealt with those, you know, buys and sells. So I called them up and uh, got the ball rolling. And I went through a number of interviews with firms. And the problem I encountered, the two problems I encountered, one, some people felt because my reputation is why I had some of the business and that, you know, after they took it over, it might leave. Right. Like if they came for Bill Bengen and his 4% rule, if there's no more Bill Bengen running the firm, does that mean the clients are going to stick around or not? Yeah, my halo was gone. So, and the other aspect too was that since I was an active manager and most of them were not, you know, they were going to be dealing with a different set of client expectations that they had with their clients and with mine. So, I went through a lot of disappointing interviews, but I finally, another financial planner said, You know, we know somebody in San Diego that may want to expand. So, I, I called up, turned out to be an old friend. And yeah, we're interested. We got to talking and we still use the third party as a go-between to keep some, you know, distance between right. us. I, I felt that was important. So emotions didn't get involved, but that, that worked very well. I eventually sold my practice to them. I was heavily involved in the transition process. I sat in practice on every interview that my clients had with them and uh, feel great because they've done a great job, you know, for my clients. I'm, I'm, I felt like I, my most important responsibility was the one at the end. Or I handed my clients off to somebody who would treat them as well, I felt, as I was treating them. So as you look at it today, you know, you've now done literally decades of this research. You've lived it. You've lived multiple market cycles. So I guess I'm wondering two things. One, how do you look at 4% rule today? Like, is that still the number? Or is it 45 half, Or is it 5 Or is it something else? And... How do you think about the balance between what strikes me is there's really two levers to this. There's what you're doing with the withdrawal rate and there's what you're doing with the portfolio for which you are not a passive participant, you're a more active participant. So 
what do you look at as a safe withdrawal rate rule and how do you think about integrating a withdrawal rate rule and these tactical shifts? You know, if you asked me that question a year ago, I probably would have told you what I've been doing for the last 20 some years. But in the last year, I've done some research, which, you know, is based upon research you did back in 2008, where you found there was a correlation between stock market valuation and withdrawal rates that were successful. Looked into that more deeply, found a way to enhance that. Once I found that particular method, I got, that's a whole different approach. Right now, I would not be recommending 4.5% to clients as the starting point. Depending upon the inflation level and the level of the market, I might be up to 13%, which historically, there were periods of time when you could take withdrawals that high. Not a great time to be taking high withdrawals now with the market so expensive, but it's not awful either because inflation is very low. And so what do you think about as a number in the, in the environment today? I think somewhere, you know, four, three quarters, 5% is probably going to be okay. We won't know for 30 years, so I can safely say that in an interview. <laughs> and, and you think of that paired with a more conservative, it sounds like with a more conservative allocation, at least for the time being, given where valuation is. I, I, I think in accordance with my creed to avoid large losses, yeah, with the thought that if the market were to return to historically reasonable valuations, let's say high teens, mid-teens in the Schiller Cape, then I would be looking to get very, very aggressive in stocks, maybe higher than the 50 to 60% I would recommend because there are no very few sources of reliable income. You know, fixed income investments are giving you nothing. So I, I might, I thought I'd go to 80, 70, 80, 90% on dividend paying stocks. If I could get them at cheap enough prices, I'm not concerned about safety. Because if you buy something at a right price, you know, you're good. You're good for many years. So that's kind of a radical change in my view, but I think that's necessitated by the times we're in. And, and all driven by this combination of low yields, which would drive you towards more stocks, but low inflation, which actually gives you comfort that we don't need to be hanging out down to like 2 or 3% withdrawal rates. High fours and up to five is, is still reasonable because- at the end of the day, when inflation's this low and you're only spending a few percent, you, you actually don't need a huge amount of growth in your portfolio. No, but you know, once again, it's preserving the capital. You know, you, when you retire, you've got that chunk of money you want to preserve it. You don't want it to get diminished by any substantial amount because it may not come back. It may not. So how do you look at the journey of building your own advisory firm? Like what surprised you about building an advisory business? I was surprised it was successful, <laughs> quite frankly, because I had never been out on my own. I worked in a family business, which is not quite the same as working your own. So I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I could attract clients. I didn't know if I could uh, earn their trust. I worked hard in getting the technical knowledge, you know, the CFP, probably my early, I, I always read a lot about investments. I felt most comfortable in that particular area, but, you know, financial planning is a lot more than that, as we know. But, you know, over time, I gained confidence. Financial planning is a complex area. People just struggle with it, and they really need somebody to help them. Just great, you know, that I was able to get myself into that position. And, and so I am struck, you know, as you said, like, I, I didn't know if I could do it, if I could attract clients, if I could earn their trust. But you did take the leap. Yeah. Like, well, all of it's going to work, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it anyways. So what, what gets you comfortable to take that 
leap with that much uncertainty, particularly because as you've said, like you are a, you are a conservative investor by nature. So it, it strikes me that's a, that's a fairly aggressive thing to do for uh, someone that takes conservative positions. Because I, I think I found out in my life that when I took certain leaps of faith, they managed to work out, you know, as they did. Uh, I only applied to uh, one college, MIT, when I applied for college, which looking back is a pretty stupid approach to a college application. But I wanted to go there. And I said, I, you know, I'm just going to do it. And when we moved to New York, we made our decision very quickly from New York. And that worked for And I've had other things in my life where in your individual life, I think it pays to take big risks when your situation where change is going to come to you one way or another. It's like, you ever watched the show Monk? I don't know if they've watched. It was an episode of Monk where uh, there was a saying, someone was talking about their grandfather became very rich doing something. And he said, leap and a safety net will appear. You know, and I think that's a pretty good motto. And, and, and many things in life, you just need to take the leap because if you don't take the leap, you'll never take the risk. You'll be frightened of, of things, you know. I don't think that applies to investing. Investing is a whole different discipline. Different rules apply. Because in investing, the, the, the rule is, is protect your capital and don't take large losses. But in the, in the personal realm, it's if, if your situation is changing anyways, you, you may as well take the leap because the, the upside is actually rather large when we, when we right. change our life trajectory for the better. It's, it's, I think that's the difference. So what was the, what was the low point for you on the journey? Oh, what was the low point in the journey? Probably in 2009, when I was struggling with the market and getting clients mm -hmm. back in, I felt awful, you know, watching the market rising and my clients not getting the full benefit. Even though I know we were well ahead of the game, it, it still made me question, you know, what I knew. And that, that was, was painful, you know. Up to then, it had been a glorious ride, you know, I had a lot of fun. I am struck, though, for some advisors, they go through a scenario like that and make some investment calls and they don't work out and they say, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going there anymore. I'm just going to go more passive, more buy and hold. I, I, I don't, I don't want the, the stress or the burden of doing that. And then others seem to go the direction that you went that said, well, going to improve my process and, and we'll make a better call next time. But, but I'm still, I'm still comfortable and committed to this path. Yeah, I did that because I thought that the things that created me problems were Artificial things like the involvement of the central banks around the world, that, which hadn't been in place, you know, in earlier years, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, they were relatively minor players. And now they're suddenly the big player. And I'm just wondering how long can they sustain markets at excessively high valuations and keep blowing bubble after bubble? It's just very dangerous, I think, for investors uh, to passively jump into a, a lake, which is, you know, being warmed by fed heat. It's, uh, and so, and so from your perspective, then it's, we need to figure out how to adapt the, the models and the process to say, yes, this is a high risk environment, but you don't necessarily fight the fed, but it is a very high valuation environment. Yeah, that's right. If I had been a subscriber to that Investec service back in 2009, which I was not, they were recommending April clients get heavily back into the market. That would have been my signal. You know, that's, that's where I, part of my process that was missing, you know. So as you look back, like, are, are there, is there anything else that you wish you'd done differently? Like, is there anything you know now that you wish you could go tell you from 
early 1990s as you were getting ready to, to launch the firm and become a financial advisor? No, yeah, I just had such a great time. There weren't any firms uh, available that I, I felt I could have partnered with, you know, in the early years anyway. So my, my options were limited. So no, I, I don't have any regrets about what I did and how I did it. Except me at the very end, you know, the market became difficult. But my clients were wonderful, a wonderful group of people. Just having that day-to-day relationship with them and helping them, uh, having their trust, it's uh, beyond words. So what advice would you give for younger and newer advisors coming in to become a financial planner today? Well, I still think it's a wonderful field. You know, I still think you can make a difference in people's lives. So I think it's a great career path. I think it's hard to do it on your own. I, I think I would, you know, get your education and try and get some internship and follow a path into a larger firm where you have support systems about you. You're not relying on your own resources in a very difficult environment. So out of curiosity, anything you've learned, I guess, like as a retiree compared to what you advised retirees, like the, does the view look different from the other side of the, of the retirement transition as you think about the advice you gave and now the advice you'd want to receive as a retiree? I always told my clients, you know, they, they should be thinking retirement is moving towards something, not away from something, not moving away from your work life. You're working to a whole new scheme of life and that therefore you should have things, whether it be hobbies, activities that you want to be actively involved in and know what they are and perhaps setting the groundwork for that before you retire. I've got my writing, you know, my research, which is part of the reason I retired. I wanted to have more time to do all that. And that's worked out very well. So I feel pretty comfortable how retirement, I can't even call retirement. I'm, you know, I'm putting in five days a week writing, you know, weekends still are meaningful to me, believe it or not. It's not all one anomalous, you know, amorphous time span. It's uh, there are weekends, there are work days. And I expect that gives some meaning and structure to my life. What about from the perspective of retirement and spending advice itself? Does thinking about things like the 4% rule still feel comfortable for you as a retiree looking at your portfolio? Does it, does it feel different when you're on the receiving end of thinking about that advice and applying it in scary environments like we've had in, in the past year? Well, yeah, it's a, you know, this is it, boys. <laughs> this is not a drill. This is the real thing. Yeah. But my wife and I are pretty conservative. And at my age also, you know, you have, you have to raise your, your spending targets as you age, we could probably spend 5%, five and a quarter versus four and a half very comfortably. We don't spend that much. You know, we just don't. There's not much we want to spend it on. We're not into things. We're not into toys. So we live a relatively modest lifestyle. For us, it's fine. You know. Would you change the view around recommendations to clients sort of in, anticipating that? I don't know, like me. Maybe your spending is not going to lift up as much in the later years because you just may not want to spend on things once you're comfortable with your life. Their spending would increase with inflation right through to the end of their life. And what I found out is that, you know, your spending on health needs will increase over what you had earlier. And also, you know, if you have family members and you want to give them money, that should be built into the plan. That's treated as an expense and that should increase as you age. So I told my clients that they should not expect their expenditures reduced later in life. They should 
look at giving money, charity, family members, whoever. And uh, I find that's worked great for me. Because in practice, if you if you're used to seeing a certain amount of money flow out of the household and you can afford to have that much money flow out of the household, we find a way to do it. If you don't want to buy things, you can give it to the grandkids or whoever else you want or give it to charity. But just if you're used to a certain dollar amount flowing out and that's comfortable, we, we find a way to yeah. use it or consume it or give it away or do something with it, which just means those outflows sustain, even if it's not purely personal household spending driven. You should enjoy your money. And part of the, uh, the enjoying your money is giving it to other people. You, you're younger, you know, and help them in their lives and, or give it to charities, you know, who are desperate right now in this time. Right. I don't know how many charities locally we've been helping the zoo, animal park, museums. Uh, they're desperate for funds now. Right. Just absolutely desperate. So what, what comes next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm going to finish this novel next week. I have been trying to get it published. No luck so far. Still writing those literary agents. I've written about 600 of them and nobody's got it. This is industry related? This is like novel, 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 like non, uh, a fiction novel. Fiction novel. And it's a trilogy. There are three books. And I'm almost done with it. I should be done with it by next week. And then I'm going to really start seriously. I'll take a break and seriously start focusing on continuing my 4% re- research. You know, I want to upgrade my book, revise it from 2006. I know it's going to be a much bigger book now, a lot more charts in it. <laughs> I, try, I had trouble with a publisher the first time I came through. It only had 170 pages. Said, That's just that's not long enough for a technical book. You've got to add something. I said, well, what do you suggest I add? <laughs> pictures. <laughs> yeah, pictures. No. I, you know, to me, a book is it's like a story. You're writing a novel. My first novel, my coach said, it's too long. You know, and I said, well, I wrote until I ran out of story. <laughs> that's what it is. So I was able to cut that in half. You know, I think you just keep doing things until you run out of energy or ideas. That's life. Like, what's the focus for you on the on the research end? Like, what's you know, you you you've lived and done this research, published multiple papers, an entire book on it. Like, what what do you view as the the next frontier in the research or the next area that you want to add to it? Well, I think I made a big advance with that recent paper based on your work. And I think that provided the last tool in the toolkit that I've been wanting to give advisors to completely manage the withdrawal process. You know, at the front end, specify what the withdrawals would be, monitor the process during a client's, you know, lifetime, and then have some sort of a system in place that if they need to make changes, if the withdrawal plane is failing, how do you do that? You know, and I think now we have all those. And what I'm doing now basically is just updating a lot of the numbers I have are 14 years old. I want to make sure there's no changes. Right. Look at all the various, there's so many variables, you know. Right. And as I mentioned also, I want to look at using lots of different asset classes to see what effect that would have on the withdrawal rate. Interesting. So, so it's kind of this tie in valuation, inflation more diversification, different asset classes, and yeah. some kind of system about how, how you actually mix all of those together in practice to come up with particular client recommendations? Yep. Also look at the rebalancing. How frequently should you rebalance? You know, a lot of folks do it every year. I don't think that's optimal for people in retirement. But Because uh, you would do it more often or you would do it less often? Less often, primarily because 
stock market rallies tend to bear uh, bull markets and occur in four, five, six years, a longer periods of time. And if you're right. rebalancing, you're, you're cheating the portfolio of returns. Right. So I haven't, you know, I've just started looking at that again. I, I'm not ready. I, I hate to talk about something when I haven't, you know, formulated some solid idea, but the indications everywhere I look is that longer is better. Meaning why now, why not the rebalancing period? So there's more room for bull markets to run and you're not just, you're not just clipping your bull market continuously when you actually get one of the good bull market cycles. Right. And it could have, it could have a significant effect. It could be maybe a quarter percentage point on the withdrawal rate. That's not chicken feed. You know, that's another 5% or so. Right. 5% lifetime spending to go from five to five and a quarter. That's, that's nothing to shake a stick at. So as we, as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast around success. And one of the themes that that always comes up is even the, the word success often means different things to different people. And so, you know, you've had this run of contributing research, the advisor world built a successful advisory practice and, and, and sold it. It wouldn't of itself was your second career after the first. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, for me, success is uh, achieving things that I think are important. You know, family is very important. So my grandson, my wife, you know, my kids are still very important to me, keeping close contact with them and passing along whatever help, whatever wisdom I can. And just simply whatever abilities I was given, trying to get the most out of them. Yeah, that's why I continue to write because it interests me. And I think I can still contribute to people's understandings of things. And that's important to me. You know, it's more than the money. I never made a lot of money out of the 4% rule. <laughs> I tell you that much. That was, but I was just felt very grateful. I was able to give back to the profession, which gave so much to me. So I'm happy to do it. You know, it's a thrill. Very cool. I appreciate you joining us and sharing the, the story and the journey here on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.